Welcome to Southland City Church. Uh, my name is Jason, and I'm so grateful that you're here. Uh, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whether you've been with us from the beginning, which was like three weeks ago, or now, uh, we don't have much history, uh, but we have some veterans in the room, and we have some newcomers, and for all of you, I'm super grateful. Uh, if you're new to the community and you're wondering what have you walked into, what is this today, uh, let me tell you a little bit about how we describe what we feel called to be. These are uh, four mantras that describe the way that we see in Jesus of being human in the world right now. And so one of our mantras uh, that you might have heard before if you've been here for a bit is practices, not performances. Uh, by that we mean, first of all, your life doesn't have to be a performance. Your faith doesn't have to be a performance. You have nothing to prove in God's kingdom, which the good news is then you're free to practice. We're actually free to sort of try on the rhythms uh, that Jesus teaches us that the historic church has moved into to grow in the way of Jesus together. So practices, not performances. Uh, another one of our mantras is sushi, not fish stew which is a slightly cheeky way of talking about simplicity, about staying really clear on the very few things that are very important and leaving the clutter behind. And that reflects our, our dream as a community to have a simple, focused life together. And I hope it might be helpful to you in your, your everyday life too, to ask yourself what's most important to hold on to that and let go of everything else. Uh, sometimes we talk about fields, not factories, which is a way of saying just because the world seems to work the way manufacturing works, doesn't mean our souls work that way. Um, that maybe in a factory you can control everything, you can put anything on whatever timeline you want, you can turn any raw material into any widget, but Jesus loves metaphors of the field. He loves metaphors of organic growth, which suggests that not everything happens on our timeline, which calls us to be patient with each other, which teaches us that we can't guarantee the outcome of every moment in our lives, but if we tend to our fields, if we tend to our lives with God, we can see new life and growth emerge. And then uh, we talk about everyone an icon, everyone a divine image. This is very theological for us. It comes from the scriptures. The first word spoken over humanity is that we are bearers of the divine image, which means that every act of honoring one another, every act of loving one another, every act of welcoming and respecting every kind of person who's in our midst, is an act of honoring God, of loving God, of respecting God in our midst. And so I hope that you experience that kind of honor and welcome when you're with this community. Uh, we've got some greeters who are gonna pass some baskets around. If you'd like to make an offering, that's so you can do that. There's never any pressure. And also, most of our community tends to give online, so you're always welcome to go to our website and give that way if you'd like to. Uh, let me tell you where we're going uh, for the next couple of weeks. Um, we are tapping into the lectionary, uh, which is, as Dan already mentioned, a way of sort of breaking out the scriptures into, into pieces, into chunks, that communities of Jesus followers all around the world move through the same texts at the same time. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the text, the gospel that is on uh, the lips and the hearts of Jesus communities all around the world. Before we get there, though, uh, we want to do a bit of a debrief over where we've been for the last three weeks. If you're new here, this might be new to you, uh, but sometimes we just kind of like to open things up, have a bit of an open floor and hear what has been stirred up in you as we've prayed and studied the scriptures and worshiped and thought about our community. So let me remind you where we've been the last three weeks, and then I'm going to ask if anybody wants to raise their hand and just share with us anything that's gotten stirred up or moved within you, anything that you've noticed differently as a result of what we've been doing as a community. Where we've been is talking specifically about Sopin City Church as a community of grace and peace for our city. We've talked about what it means to love our city, uh, to share grace and peace with our city, to be good neighbors in our city. We began with Ryan teaching us uh, from the, the moment where the apostles meet the beggar, 
And he talked about how the first thing that they did that was really important there was when a beggar asked for money, they saw that there was even a deeper need in the beggar's life. They had a vision for the deeper need. And then they were able to be wise about what they had to offer because not everybody has the same things to offer. But when you meet your neighbors and you see their real need and you ask yourself, like, who am I? What do I have to meet this moment? You might discover that there's something there. Uh, so we talked about that the first week, loving your neighbors, seeing the deep need, and bringing what you have to help. Then the second week of this conversation, we heard from three community partners. We heard from uh, Michelle and Hope Ministries. We heard from Sam and La Costa de Amasad and the work on the West Side. And we heard from Corey and Transformation Ministries, their work with students here in South Bend. And uh, what we got to hear from them was both a little bit about what they're up to in their work and how we as a church can partner with them, but also a little bit about how they see the city and how they see things changing and healing in the city, a little bit of their wisdom and insight for this community. And then last week, I talked about the soul of the city, about the idea that um, connected to and including but, but transcending economics and politics and neighborhoods and bodies and, and culture and needs, that there's a, there might be a soul in our city and that we could ask ourselves, how is the soul of our city? Is it wounded and hurting? And where we see something broken in our city, is that coming from a hurting, broken place in the soul of our city? And are we here as some of the people in our city who will tend to the soul of our city, who will lift the head of our city, who will celebrate the city and love it so that the soul out of which the city lives is healed and brings life and vitality to the people who are part of this place? And in all of that, we were also talking about how hopefully this applies, whether South Bend is your home or someplace else that you call home, hopefully you could take all of that to the place uh, that you return to when you leave this place. So that's where we've been. And I'm just curious, does anybody want to share, has anything gotten stirred up inside you? Have you learned to see anything a little bit differently in the last few weeks? Have you moved toward a need or a neighbor? Have you had a new idea about what it means to love the city well? Anybody want to share? Yes, sir. Okay, so, uh, the soul of the city, uh, last year really spoke to me because, um, well, the history of the city that you share really gave you depth and insight. And as opposed to just like looking at things how they are now, mm -hmm. but understanding what it's let me summarize that much so everybody hears. So Paul's talking about the soul of the city and what that meant to him, specifically hearing the history that we talked through of our city south then, and you said it gave some depth to that, right? Yeah, because like, when you look at it, when you like, compare that with us as people and the soul that we have, like if you look on the surface and you, and you go by what you see on the surface, you might have a certain opinion or yeah. perspective, but if you understand, you know, walk in that person's footsteps, then you understand how we come to where we are. And then underneath all that, yeah. we're basically, we're all the same. We're making the same stuff we hurt, we need to cry, we have success with it. Yeah, Paul was talking about like with a person. If you look at the surface of a person, that's one thing. But if you consider what's underneath that, right, that we're all made of the same stuff, the same hurts, the same wounds, the same hopes and failures. So there's like an analogy for you there, a person in a city and like seeing the depth. Yeah, thank you, Paul. That's awesome. Yeah. Conviction around everyone and icon. Yeah, so for the soul of the city to grow, all the residents need to grow, not just certain groups.
Yeah, so the more that we can reach out and usher other people in, it'll foster greater pride and greater sense of the soul. Yeah, thank you. It's funny, in my head I was thinking, you know, the 845 is like a much smaller gathering and a lot more people shared. And then I was like, maybe this room is scarier with this many people in it. I don't know. Anybody else? I want to share one uh, reflection from the 845 that I was especially um, struck by. Somebody at 845 talked about when we had our community partners here from Hope and La Costa de Amistad and Transformation Ministries, uh, what Lori in the first service shared was um, she can be the kind of person who like, tries to invent a wheel when we already have one. Um, but that when she, just to hear that there are already community partners doing really good and effective work in some of these areas of need and opportunity, uh, I heard her say that it was both freeing because she realized she doesn't have to come up with solutions from scratch, she doesn't have to solve every problem. There's already people on the cause, but it was liberating to know that she could join and be a part of the good work that's already happening. And the reason that really struck me is because sometimes churches with the best of intent show up in areas where they see a need and they don't recognize that there are already people in the neighborhood serving the need. There are already um, intelligent people working on solutions for the need. Sometimes churches show up with the best of intent and they can actually make things worse when they never stop to ask, who's already here? Who understands these problems? Who's working with these people? How can we come alongside them? And so it meant a lot for me to hear that because that's really core to our philosophy, whether we're loving our neighbors here in South Bend or working in other places in the world. Uh, so that was really great. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, if you're around here for long, I hope that you will hear again and again and again obnoxiously often um, how we are trying to love our city because we think uh, that love is particular. And so as a, as a church, we are here in the city of South Bend, and so our love is particular for our city, and we want to keep growing and learning what that looks like. Uh, now, let's turn to the lectionary today, and um, we're going to specifically look at the gospel reading. This is the story of Jesus that's being told in communities of Jesus followers all around the world today. And uh, today's gospel reading comes from the book of John. And all I want to do today is offer a brief sort of reflection on it, hoping that we can sort of find ourselves within the story. Uh, and then a little more on that going into next week. Now, as we look at John, it's interesting, a little bit of Bible nerd action for all the nerds in the room. Uh, when, we, when we read the New Testament, we have what are called four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the places in the Bible that actually tell the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? Well, what's interesting is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. And what we mean by that is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell many of the same stories, uh, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get the impression they're working largely from the same pool of raw material from the stories of Jesus that were told in those communities. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel is not the synoptic gospel because John seems to be working with largely other source material. You find very little overlap between John's gospel and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, the death and resurrection of Jesus, you see that in all four Gospels. You don't even see the birth narrative of Jesus. For all that we like, love and get excited about Christmas, not all the Gospels feel it's important to tell the story of the birth of Jesus. It's interesting, though, because uh, be besides the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's a very, very small handful of stories, like, like a few, like three or four, that show up in all four Gospels. And what we're about to look at is two of the stories that show up in all four Gospels. And the reason that's interesting to me is because that tells me that 
In the ancient world, when the church was first coming alive, when it was being awakened, when people were first sort of entering into this, whether it was uh, persecuted communities of Christians huddling uh, in darkened rooms so they wouldn't be attacked, or whether it was uh, broadly spoken stories of Jesus in the temple course in Jerusalem, whether you were in Rome or Ephesus, like all around the world, it's like, what was it about their experience of Jesus that was so important they always had to share this story with one another? What was it about the experience of Jesus that was so central that this is the thing that they talked about with one another when they talked about Jesus. And it appears that what we are about to look at is some of that stuff. So like, I find that really interesting, even from a historical perspective, to, to know that what we are looking at today seems to be absolutely central to the early church's experience of Jesus. Uh, so we're going to look at that. And again, my, my hope today is just to add a couple layers of context to help us find ourselves in this. Uh, just a brief reflection on the gospel for today. You guys ready? Are we good? Okay, excellent. You guys are really good to me. Thank you. Just needed that little uh, extra. I was going to go home. <laughs> okay. So here we go. John chapter 6. Sometime after this, time out, uh, we'll come back to that later, but when the Gospels like, make that kind of a transitional statement, super important. Pay attention. Okay. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountaintop and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. All right, some basic observations. Here we have a story of scarcity. We'll find out in just a minute, we're talking like 5,000 men plus women and children. And they're there on the mountainside. They've come out to this place to hear Jesus. And they're hungry. And the disciples don't know what they're going to do about this. If we're going to find ourselves in the story, we could just start with this very basic observation. This is about a moment where you don't know if you have enough. If you've ever had a moment where you don't know if you have enough, you might be able to find yourself in this story. If you have a recurring experience where you don't know if you have enough, you could probably find yourself in this story. This may be quite literally about like financial means. You may have a hard time making ends meet. You may have a hard time getting to the end of the month. You may find that the debts that you've racked up or a difficulty finding good paying jobs has brought you to a point where again and again, you literally don't know if the check will clear. If you've had that kind of scarcity in your life, this is probably a story for you. This might be a story for every parent who has ever looked at the multitude that they call their children and wondered if they have enough, enough energy, enough wisdom, enough, um, enough patience, enough insight for these uh, kids that are growing up and becoming like persons and you don't know how you can bring them what they need for the questions they are asking and the difficulties they are working through. This is for every bleeding heart in the room that has ever moved toward a social cause and they, they see a profound need in the world. They see a, a group of people with a certain set of needs. They see something broken in the world that they are moving toward. And though their heart propels them toward it, they keep running into this sense of scarcity, of lack, like there isn't enough. This is a story for people who, uh, who wonder, like, do we have enough? Are we going to be okay in this enterprise, in this family, in this marriage, in our finances? Are we going to be okay? This is a story that we can all find ourselves in. I just want to begin by observing that, and then uh, I want to see what happens here. 
Uh, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go, so, go among so many? This is the part where your teammate or your spouse or your partner says something completely unhelpful. You know what I mean? Like you smack them, like we would have been better off if you would have just shut up. This is not helpful in any way. And he even acknowledges, I don't know if this is useful, but here's what I got. I got five loaves for 5,000 men plus women and children. Uh, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And the people saw the sign Jesus performed. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I want us to find ourselves in this story. So we've talked about scarcity for a moment, and then I'm so intrigued by what happens. Jesus says to Philip, what are we going to do about this? What are, what are we going to do about this? Um, this is a question that I'm, I'm trying to learn and train myself to hear when I wonder if we're going to have enough, when I wonder if we're going to be okay, when I run into the end of something and I think that's it, the thing's done, the project is over, it's all falling apart. I'm learning to hear this question, like, what are we going to do about this? I notice, first of all, that Jesus seems to be taking a moment that feels like scarcity and suggesting that it has some possibility in it. Scarcity gets turned into possibility with this question. So I wonder if anywhere that you have run into the end of yourself, the end of your means, the end of your energy, if you think we won't have enough and we aren't going to be okay, is Jesus there with you saying, what are we going to do about this? Is he trying to move things from scarcity to possibility? Is he saying there's something latent or pregnant in this moment? And if, if you watch with me, if you hang with me, we might discover what that is. Also, um, what are we going to do about this? If you've ever been in a moment where you don't have enough, where things are scarce, where you're not sure we're going to be okay, it can be tempting to throw our hands up in the air and be like, God, what are you going to do about this? And Jesus says, hey, Philip, what are we going to do about this? It says he already knows what he was going to do, but he seems to be saying to Peter, like, I actually want to bring you in on this action. This is a teaching moment. This is a participation moment. You don't have to be a spectator. I'm actually bringing you in on the action. You run into the end of yourself, the end of your energy, the end of your resources. You look around, you think we don't have enough and we are not going to be okay. And I wonder if we could actually train ourselves to hear this question from Jesus. What are we going to do about this? Is there a possibility hidden in the scarcity? And are you being invited to participate where you would be tempted to sit on the sidelines and wait and see what God's going to do? Uh, early on in the church, um, I had a lot of this going on because uh, I'd quit my job and like you don't know if the church is going to happen, you know. Um, we have this kind of crazy idea to instigate a new community called Southland City Church, and there's no guarantees. Uh, I convinced three of my friends to quit their jobs and join me, and they moved their families, and there are family payroll budget on the line, um, and we do a couple sort of early meetings, sort of one-offs here and there, and then there's a day on the calendar where we decide we're going to start meeting that Wednesday night every week. And I feel a lot of things. I feel hopeful and, and excited, and I feel anxious and terrified. I remember laying in bed a few nights later and literally thinking, oh, crap, we have a church now. <laughs> what have we done, you know? <laughs> um, 
Because this whole thing has been sort of one step at a time. Let's just see what this is supposed to be. And so there's this first night at the Brick uh, when we were going to do every Wednesday night starting in October 2016. It's our first Wednesday night at the Brick. And I am just like a colossal, uh, like nuclear-powered mess inside of hope and curiosity. And I don't know who's going to show up. And this might be the moment where we find out this thing just isn't going to happen and nobody's going to come and nobody's going to give any money. And I'm going to have to apologize to my friends who quit their jobs. It's going to work for me because I can't pay them. Like all that stuff's going on inside because there's, real, like there's, there's practical concerns and theological concerns and spiritual hopes and all this stuff wrapped up in the thing. So we're there at the Brick on the first night. It's a Wednesday night in October. And some people show up which is very exciting. Uh, the rug was there. There was a time when this was the only thing that Southland City Church owned and we were so proud of our rug. <laughs> or at least I was proud of the rug. I don't know if anybody else is proud of the rug. The rug was there and, uh, and people walk in the room and you know, you're just like on the edge of your seat, like, all right, this is happening. And I remember Dan starts the first song and like a minute and 22 seconds in, does anybody remember? The power goes out. <laughs> we later find out that a small tornado had actually moved through the neighborhood. I'm there in the back of the room. By the way, we have kids next door at the YMCA. We don't know if they have power, if the kids are, I don't know, if, like a, if a Lord of the Flies thing is happening in the dark rooms of the, of the YMCA, you know? Like, we just have no idea. And I'm thinking, literally, my first thought is, that's it, we're done. I'm thinking, like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life working at McDonald's. I, I'm going to go crawling back to my old employer, and they won't let me have my job back, and the whole thing's falling apart. We are at the end of ourselves, and things are not going to be okay. Some of you are wondering how I've made it this far, I know. This is my actual sort of inner monologue. And then there's something in my spirit like, hey, Jason, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? Is there a possibility hidden right here in the middle where we don't have power or light? What are we going to do with this? Are you being invited to be a collaborator with God? By the way, um, side note, I don't personally have a theology that says that every time the power goes out or a thing happens that God like directly caused that. Um, but I do have a theology that says God is meeting us in every moment ready to collaborate with us. And so I am learning to hear this question. Dan has this great moment of insight where he's like, well, should we keep singing? And everybody says, yes. And so we sang in the dark with no sound. And then I'm thinking, am I gonna preach a sermon in the dark? And so I get up and I said, do you guys want to keep going? And everybody says, yes. And I think this could not be a better way to start a church because it was entirely about the people in the room and the things that we were creating together. And like we weren't um, enslaved to any kind of circumstance. It was like a beautiful way to start a church. And I'll always look back on that night grateful that there was a possibility hidden in the moment when the power went out. This is a story uh, about scarcity that, that hides possibility that's right there. This is a story uh, about a God who is always saying, what do, what do we want to do about this? Hey, spectator, what do we want to do about this? Let's work together on this. Let's collaborate. Let's dig into the moment and see what might be waiting for us here. Now, um, there's another story that's included in the lectionary reading for today. It's sort of the next moment here. Uh, and I want to see if I can sort of hold these together for us. So verse 16 continues, When the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. And a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened, which is the only legitimate response that I can think of, right? 
They didn't see Jesus on the water and start singing Amazing Grace. They didn't like have a shout to the Lord moment. By the way, I've, I've been on the Sea of Galilee on the boat and they do play shout to the Lord and it's the cheesiest thing I've ever seen in my life. They don't have that moment. They're just freaked out. It's dark. There's waves crashing against their boat. They have nothing but moonlight on the water. And there's a dude walking toward them on the water. You're thinking, is this a ghost, a demon? I don't know what's coming at me, right? And then Jesus said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So first we had a story about scarcity uh, within which was hidden possibility. And now we have a story about a threat that they perceived coming at them, which hid the fact that Christ was actually walking toward them. Scarcity, what looked like scarcity proved to be a moment of possibility. What looked like a threat coming at them proved to be Christ who was with them. I just want to kind of uh, sit with those for a couple of moments. Now, um, I want to be careful about how we interact with this passage. Because when we talk about scarcity, about not having what you need, when we talk about threat or fear, uh, I think we run the risk of articulating uh, what I would call a sort of counterfeit version of belief or faith that can be really hurtful. And what I mean by this is if you've ever had a moment where you really don't have what you need, if you've ever known or loved someone who really didn't have what they need, and somebody looked at you or looked at them and said, oh, don't worry, I prayed, everything's going to be okay, you want to slap them, right? If you've ever had a moment where the diagnosis came through and it wasn't good, and somebody attempting to be encouraging or faithful says something like, don't worry, Jesus loves you, we're praying, we know, we know that the cancer is going to be defeated, and then it wasn't, then you know like how frustrating it can be to have somebody take stories like these, right, of a scarcity which is met with possibility, of a threat that turns out to be a good thing. It's frustrating to have stories like that taken and used to make cheap assertions about your circumstance, right? So what I want to avoid is a kind of Pollyanna-ish, pie-in-the-sky kind of faith that we take out of this. The good news is whatever, whatever is going on in the text, whatever reason that we have this in John 6, whatever the reason is that this text comes from the early church to us as an experience of Jesus, the one thing you can be certain of is the Bible doesn't know anything about Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky, naive faith. And the reason I say that is because the Bible is saturated with an eyes wide open, real world understanding of suffering and difficulty. You can't turn more than a couple of pages in this book and find communities and persons which are grappling deeply and profoundly with the fact that things aren't always okay and the cancer doesn't always go away and the scarcity doesn't always turn into a possibility and the fear doesn't always prove out to be unwarranted. These are people who do experience like real difficulty in the world. Like take, for example, a guy named Paul who writes things like this in 2 Corinthians 11. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 40 minus one because 40 is what will kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. So he's taking it from the left and the right. I've been in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. 
That's just one little example from one random page in the scriptures that reminds me, whatever we do with this book, whatever we do with the gospels, whatever we do with Jesus, this book is not unacquainted with scarcity, with difficulty. This book knows that there are circumstances that don't always get better, that there are scarcities that aren't always met with abundant loaves of fish and bread, or loaves of bread and fish. <laughs> this book knows that. So I'm saying like whatever we do with this, it can't be trying to talk us into a, a Pollyanna pie in the sky, everything's gonna be okay kind of faith, right? Well, then what's, the, what's going on here? Like, what's the possibility? Well, let me keep sort of working this out with you. First of all, an idea that came from a friend of our community named Peter Rollins. Uh, Dan, our worship pastor, and I were in LA in January learning from him from a couple of days. And Rollins was talking about different sort of modalities of faith or belief. And he was saying there's a modality of faith or belief, this sort of pre-critical idea, which says, don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. This is, the, this is the sort of well-intended, completely useless, almost hurtful uh, response of a certain kind of faith to a need that comes to you uh, when you don't have what you need, that speaks to the world when the world doesn't have what they need and says cheaply and naively, don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. He says that's one modality of faith or belief. He says there's another modality uh, which uh, sort of moves from that, gets a, a heavy dose of reality, and then says nothing's okay. God's not good. God may not be there at all. Like the whole thing just falls down. The whole thing falls apart. That's the second sort of modality of belief that we could have. But he says there is a third modality. He said there's another option that we can grow into. And he says it's the voice that speaks wisely and says everything may not be okay. And that's okay. Everything may not be okay, but we're going to be okay. And what I want to argue is that you could, uh, you could map that with these three words, that there's naivety, which would take a story like this and say, whatever the need, you just need to believe harder and pray harder and trust more, and then everything's going to be okay. I'd call that naivety because not everything is okay. And it's like pretty obvious in the world right now that not everything is okay. And there may be a circumstance in your life where things have not been okay. That, it's naivety that just ignores that or glosses over that. Uh, but then I would call cynicism the response that says nothing's okay, nothing will ever be okay. There's, there's not more to the story. What we have is just what we see. There's no possibility here. There's no hope here. And what I would call faith is that third motif, which has a, a way of saying, I don't know what the circumstance will be. But there's something about the abundant love of God, there's something about the presence of Christ that meets us on the open water that says that even if things aren't okay, we will somehow be okay. Even if things aren't okay, we will somehow be okay. Now to make my case even stronger here, uh, when I read John 6, I ask myself, why, why did John decide to include this story in his gospel? What was it about? So, so John decides to write a gospel, right? Which is a fairly intense undertaking. He decides to write a gospel and he's got to decide what are the stories that he will include that the people of Jesus experienced with Jesus. And now we can read the gospels and we can forget that like other texts in the Bible, they come from certain places and times. They're shaped by the context out of which they emerge and they are spoken into a context. There's a, there's a need compelling John to tell these stories again and to write them down. Now from what we can tell with John's gospel, uh, this, this, this gospel is written uh, late first century. This is a time when the followers of Jesus are beginning to be seen as uh, different from the Jewish communities. 
They're being seen as a threat to the Jewish communities, and at the same time, they're being seen as separate from the Roman imperial order and a threat to the Roman imperial order. Remember when Paul said, I've taken it from both sides, from left and right? This is the experience of the church in the late first century that John is writing from and writing for. In fact, by the way, like as, as a sort of historical point of evidence here, uh, to remind ourselves that these people were being threatened, that they were... Um, that they had, they had real things coming against them. Let me turn your attention to the Berkat Hamanim. The Berkat Hamanim. Let's try, uh, yeah, the Berkat Hamanim. Let's try saying that on three. One, two, three. Yeah, now the Berkat Hamanim is a daily prayer which is written and added uh, to the, the daily liturgy in the Jewish synagogues. And the best evidence suggests that this prayer was written and added to the prayer in the Jewish synagogues sometime late in the first century sometime around the time that John's gospel is written. Now, the text of the Berkat Hamanim, there's different sort of historical iterations of it, but it calls for God to blot out the heretics. There's a later medieval version of it that says, destroy the Nazarites, which is a way of describing the Christians because Jesus is from Nazareth. Um, what I'm saying is this is a sort of historical data point that reminds us that if you were a Christian in the late first century following Jesus, but you were still holding on to your Jewish identity, your community of origin was still your family, you would show up at a synagogue for a daily prayer, and you might hear a prayer from the middle of that room, which calls for you to be blotted out and destroyed. Now, full disclosure, there's a debate about whether the Berkat Hamanim was written against Christians in the first century. So I want to put that out. There's kind of two theories here. But the larger picture stands, regardless of what scholar you read, that, that John's gospel is being written from a community and for a community that has been walking toward Jesus, walking toward what is true, walking toward what is real, walking toward what is good, walking toward what is God. And as they walk toward those things, they're running into greater and greater resistance from their communities of origin. I'm saying that John includes a story here about when you're not going to have everything you need and you're afraid. And he writes it for a community of people who are being evicted from their communities of origin and, and, and they're suffering threats that will turn into murder by the Roman Empire when the Jews turn them over. He, he says to this community, you may feel like you don't have what you need when you walk toward the truth and if it causes you that you have to walk away from old patterns, old communities, old structures, old systems, you may feel like there's a threat coming at you when you decide to take a step toward what is true and real and good and holy and things might be hard, but somehow we believe we will be okay. Uh, a little more data point for you. Uh, remember the beginning of the passage, sometime after this? I made a note about that, right? So the immediately preceding uh, moment in John, chapter 5, this is what happens. Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath, and he's dragged in front of the religious leaders, and they accuse him of doing things that he should not be doing. And he says, I do what my father tells me to do. And they get more incensed because he has the audacity to call God his father. And they try to kill him. So John's gospel is written from a community and for a community that is facing resistance. Because they are walking toward a truth that is both revolutionary and transgressive. And it is causing their families of origin, their communities of origin to resist them, to criticize them to attack them. John tells a story about Jesus being chased out by the, by the religious authority, by his family of origin, being chased out, and they try to kill him. And then he tells a story about scarcity and fear and how even in scarcity and fear, God is saying, we could even do something with this. 
So I think these are stories for any moment that we run into any scarcity, any moment that we run into anything we are afraid of. But I think these are especially stories for anyone who has had the bravery to start walking toward what is true and real and has found that as you walk toward what is true and real, there's a resistance that comes up against you. And when that resistance comes up against you, it threatens your provision, it threatens your relationships, it threatens the communities of safety that you have known. It brings uh, the feeling of fear at you and it says, don't worry, Christ is even with you in this. This fuels the bravery of the martyrs. This fuels uh, the radical movements of the church that wove together a whole new humanity, the one that had never been seen before. And the only way they did that by, was by, by crossing, crossing lines that were culturally prescribed that you do not cross. And when they crossed those lines, threats came against them and they had to wonder, will we have what we need when we're not employable because the Christians aren't employable in this community? Will we have what we need um, when there's a knock on the door late at night and there are torches outside our door? Uh, this is especially a word for anyone who has walked toward what is true and has found that it has cost them something. And it's like Jesus is saying, I'm still with you and we will do something even with this. Now, um, there's a mention in the text uh, that the Jewish Passover festival was near. And that's interesting too when you sort of consider all this context. There's, uh, the Passover is the meal for the Jews. Uh, we're on the eve of their liberation from their slavery. God asked them to have this meal and then they would return to this meal to remember that liberation from slavery. And it, they were about to embark on a difficult journey as they left home. Now, it's easy to look on the outside and say Egypt was a terrible place for them. They were enslaved. Of course, their liberation was a good thing for them. But the fact is life out on the open road, life in the wilderness is really hard. And you don't know if you will have what you will need when you're out there in the wilderness. And you don't know if you will be safe when you're out there in the wilderness. And so there's a point in their wandering where the Jews actually say we'd rather go back to Egypt because our slavery was safer and easier than life out here. And so the Passover meal, uh, which is layered into this text and so sort of resonate when we hear about Jesus taking the bread and breaking it. The Passover meal is a meal of sustenance for anybody who has left the slavery of their home to go out into a wide open and difficult place where you may not feel as safe and you may not know that you will have what you will need, but you will finally be free. So next week, uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna stop listening to me talk about this text and next week we're gonna uh, reflect and pray through the movements of this text and we're gonna come to Jesus' table for communion um, believing that he may be saying to us, you may not feel like you have all you need out there on the open road. It may be hard. It might be scary. You might be afraid. But I am with you, and I am giving you myself. And things may not be okay, but we will be okay. Uh, that'll be our plan for next week. So what I would ask for this week is um, simply that you would maybe sit with this text for a moment. It's John 6. It's easy to find. On your, in your Bible, on your phone. By the way, uh, we've got Bibles over there. If anybody wants to take one home, please feel free. Um, but what if you sat with the text for a week? What if you were finding yourself in that moment where there's not enough on the mountain and Jesus says to you, what are we going to do about this? What if you found yourself there in the moment of the unhelpful suggestion from the dweeb on the right who says, I got like two loaves. What if you found yourself in the moment on the water and you see a threat coming at you? and you wonder if anything good could come from it, and it's only after Christ reveals himself cloaked in the threat that you realize you're gonna make it? What if you found yourself on the open road walking toward what is true, and you are facing resistance, 
And as you face that resistance, you realize that's why this text was given to us. That's why the Gospels hum with life and vitality, not because they're cute little moral lessons, but because they come from the struggle of humanity being called forward into the kingdom of God and the struggle against all that resists what is good and true. Uh, let's take that journey this week, and then let's come back next week, and let's pray through our experience of it, and let's come to Jesus' table together and see how he meets us. I'm going to ask Dan to come back up and lead us one more time in a song that we sang uh, earlier today. And if you're able, will you stand to your feet while we sing this? Praise God from you find things scarce or you wonder if things will be okay, may you hear the voice of Jesus who whispers with a bit of delight and a bit of mischief, what are we going to do with this? Wherever you are afraid, may you ask yourself if cloaked within the threat is an opportunity to meet Christ even in a dark and difficult place. If you are walking toward what is true and real, if you are moving toward the heart of Christ in your life and it is costing you something, may you know that you are not alone, that you are right in the center of the life that the scriptures describe. And it's those same scriptures that say, in spite of everything, God is good and we will be okay. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys.